Welcome to your new favorite podcast, OMLS, with your host, Aryaman Varma. Here, Aryaman chats with religious leaders, economists, and modern philosophers to help shine a light on the dark corners of economics and religion. So without any further ado, let's kick off this episode. Welcome, dear listeners, to OMLAS. I'm Aryaman Varma, and today we embark on a journey into the realm of liberation theology, a powerful and transformative movement that intertwines faith with the pursuit of social justice. Joining me is Reverend Mark Jones, who brings a wealth of knowledge and insight into this dynamic theological approach. Together, we'll explore the roots, principles and contemporary relevance of liberation theology and discuss how it empowers marginalized communities around the world. So without further ado, let's dive into this enlightening conversation. Right. To get started then, what inspired you to delve into the study of liberation theology and how has it personally impacted your perspective on faith and social justice? Well, first, thank you, Ariman, for your welcome. Anyone of my age and who studied the- theology in the 1970s and 80s couldn't help but be impacted by liberation theology. And in fact, I came to a theological study having spent a year in a very tough part of East London in a parish. And that was in 1978-9. And by that time, the echoes of liberation theology were very much moving out into church circles worldwide. And even in our urban ministry, we were thinking about applying some of the principles of liberation theology here in tough urban parts of the UK. And then, as it happens, I heard one of the great exponents of liberation theology, Gustavo Gutierrez's lecture in Cambridge in 1989. And so contextual theology, which is something we might talk about in a minute or two, has been very much part of the theological scene, and that's why I'm interested in it. Sure. And for those listeners who don't really know, could you explain liberation theology and its core concepts? Yes. Essentially, what the people who developed liberation theology were interested to to do was to move theology from the university to the, if you like, housing estate. Right. And they wanted to do theology not top down, but bottom up. And they imported into theology various terms actually rooted in Marxism, but particularly the idea of praxis. And what they wanted to do was to create a situation where rather than sitting around talking about Christianity, Christians actually got out into tough social and political situations and really began applying Christian ideas and living in Christian ways and trying to bring about change. And the three mediations in liberation theology, the first socio-analytical that is, seeing things as they truly are. Sure. The second, hermeneutical, that is, applying biblical criteria and judging situations. And the third, practical, and that is working out a course of action to bring about social justice. Those are the ideas at the core of liberation theology. Right. And you mentioned the word praxis. And of course, liberation theology is very focused on action and implementing change. So what are some of the practical ways individuals can actually incorporate the principles of liberation theology into their daily lives and daily interactions? Well, I think one of the things one has to remember is that in some ways, 
the heyday of liberation theology has passed. I think the principles are still workable. Right. But there's been a great deal of reflection, of course, on what liberation theology really is. But I would say that those who are interested in liberation theology and inspired by it would, let us say, particularly be concerned about, in wealthy nations, poverty and homelessness. They might be looking to give up money or time right. to contribute to uh, charitable organizations, let's say, that work with the homeless. They'd be very concerned about certain world crisis points. So, for instance, where, let us say, um, adverse meteorologi meteorological conditions affect really poor countries or earthquakes or other natural disasters. Sure. Or even warfare. They might be wanting to get involved in that. And I think also they are concerned about treating, uh, speaking truth to power. Right. That's to say, identifying, if you like, the, the commercial nexus that has the West certainly in its grip and to some extent perhaps the developing world too. And they want to identify, if you like, times when economic forces are cut loose from, from their moral imperatives and principles that really should govern them. Sure. And um, of course, liberation theology it emerged in a specific historical and cultural context. Can you share some key events, and I know you mentioned Gutierrez, uh, yes. and, and some key figures that contributed to liberation theology's development? Yes, indeed. Liberation theology emerged in the wake of the discussions and debates that happened at the Second Vatican Council, and that was a council that was convened in Rome in the early 1960s uh, by a, a remarkable pope called John XXIII, though he died in the course of the of, of the council and the second vatican council looked at which is held by the roman catholic church the roman catholic church of course is a vast international organization sure it looked at every aspect of the roman catholic church and it was seeking to bring it up to date to make it relevant to the the, the world the post-war world the world of the 1960s and in some ways, it, it generated an energy that, that moved on into uh, particularly Central America and South America, where, of course, there are um, large and influential Roman Catholic churches. And theologians began to say, well, well, how do we apply theology in our situation, particularly in some countries where there were some very nasty dictatorships and where the, the wealth, and particularly landed wealth was very much concentrated in the hands of a few. And there was a conference of Latin American bishops at Medellin in Colombia in 1968. And that really is seen as the, as the key starting point for liberation theology. It was about that time that um, a senior theologian called Pedro Arupe coined the term the preferential option for the poor. Right. And Gutierrez, who was present at that meeting at Medellin, he uh, wrote it up. And essentially his great book of 1971, the Theology of Liberation, sure. is, is a text that summarizes what liberation theology is. So those are the roots. And then other great, some other great theologians, John Sabrino, uh, Leonardo and Clodovis Boff, uh, Juan Luis Segundo, Jose Bonino, Carlo Freire, followed yeah. Gutierrez, 
and also published remarkable uh, works of theology, taking liberation theology forward. Sure. And um, you mentioned uh, one of the distinguishing features of liberation theology in the sense of the preferential option for the poor. Can you yes. elaborate on how liberation theology empowers these communities and challenges established power structures? Yes. Essentially, the churches obviously were in some ways very much entwined with power structures. So what these theologians and the clergy who were influenced by, by them wanted to do was to go into the, the slum, the great slum areas, uh, work with working class communities and rural communities and create what they call base communities. So right. getting people together, actually reading the Bible with them, but in the kind of new ways with a new hermeneutic and getting people to reflect on the truth of the Bible stories. And I think the, the main idea was that it would inspire them, which it to some degree did, but give them a new sense of self-respect, a new belief in themselves as, as people who, having been marginalized, actually, actually did matter and, and whose humanity was being recognized. And these base communities, I think it's probably patchy, frankly, how much they really flourished across the whole of Central and South America. But the idea has been incorporated into church movements in parts of Africa, parts of Europe, in other parts of the world. And so really, it's the, it's the attempt to build from the bottom up communities of Christians who fight for social justice, who are inspired by the, the great scriptural texts that um, upon which social justice is rooted and and who have a certain confidence, I think would be the, the way of putting it in in their mission and in the, the, the also the likelihood of success. Of course, I know you briefly mentioned the Bible, but how does liberation theology interpret and apply biblical texts to address issues of social justice and oppression? Is there an example of a Bible passage, perhaps, that is central to liberation theology? Yes, very much so. There is. First of all, the Exodus narrative, or parts of it throughout the, the first five books of the Bible. Right. And Deuteronomy, for example, is, is, the, is the text about the, the law and, if you like, the, the life of the Israelite tribes once they come into the promised land. But essentially, the, the story of the release of the Israelite tribes captive in Egypt becomes a kind of paradigm for liberation. So that's that's a key part of it. And then texts in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, for example, uh, the, the story, the, the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25 of the sheep and the goats. Sure. Texts which imply that Christian faith is only valid if it is really worked out in practice. And if the people who claim to be Christians actually work out their faith by looking after the poor, looking after the sick, looking after those in prison, looking after the, the people who are really needy right. in society. Right. And uh, yeah, of course, Matthew 25, 31 to 46, an, an all time classic, some would say. Uh, but critics of uh, liberation theology sometimes propose that it blurs the lines between religion and politics. How would you respond to this critique and how does liberation theology navigate the intersection of faith and social activism? Yes. Who, who are these critics? Well, of course, to some degree, it was the Vatican because Pope John Paul II, 
it wasn't, wasn't necessarily completely unsympathetic, but there was a concern about the degree to which liberation theology was rooted in and influenced by Marxism. Right. And Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope as Benedict XVI, in 1984, he published, on behalf of the whole church, it wasn't just his work, uh, the text called The Instruction on Certain Aspects of the Theology of Liberation. And essentially, the, the critique uh, was that once liberation theology moves into the area of the class struggle, it has moved beyond something that is authentically Christian. Right. And once it adopts Marxism as a, as Marx intended it to be, and the word is an interesting one, a kind of scientific description of the way society is and the way society will change, uh, then, then liberation theology has gone too far. It's absorbed too much Marxism into its sort of bloodstream, if you like. And I think... I think that was a fair critique, actually. I think there was a danger that Marxist-influenced liberation theologians would lose some of the the key emphases of, of Christian theology sure. by getting too focused on the class struggle. Of course, there was a criticism from the other angle, too, uh, a famous book by, by Alistair Key, saying that liberation theology wasn't Marxist enough. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> that actually liberation theology really did need to absorb the, the, the full Marxist critique of capitalism, and only then could liberation theology be really effective. Sure, and liberation theology has obviously had a significant impact in Latin America with people like Gutierrez, but it's also found resonance globally. Could you share some examples of how liberation theology has influenced communities inside as well as outside of Latin America? Yes, I think particularly in the apartheid struggle in South Africa, I think the insights of liberation theologians gave a powerful impetus to Desmond Tutu and, and other leaders in the, in the struggle against apartheid. Sure. I think also that during the 1970s and 1980s, there were a lot of uh, people in church circles, and again, not in the kind of exalted circles of, of, of bishops and so on, but in ordinary church circles in Central and Eastern Europe at the time when the, uh, the, the power of the Soviet Union was very was all pervasive in, in Central Europe. In the period after the time when the Soviet forces re-established their control of Czechoslovakia, for example, in 1968, um, and particularly the Roman Catholic Church in Poland, I think, there were, there were activists there who, who were influ influenced by and, and putting into practice principles that came from liberation theology. But I think also in, in many parts of the world where there's been conflict or where you could say there have been peoples who've been oppressed, the churches have been given a, a stronger voice by reading liberation theology and being inspired by it. Right. And um, are there any contemporary adaptations, perhaps, of liberation theology that you find particularly noteworthy or fascinating? Yes. I think, as I said to you, that to some degree, the, the immediate, the sort of first flush of the force of liberation theology is probably dissipated. I think what was really interesting was that liberation theology was a kind of gateway into, into other theologies of liberation, be they feminist, be it black theology, be it 
gay, lesbian thinking, queer theology, and and so on. And and to some degree, it it still it still does that. And I think the point is that liberation theology gave Christianity a new kind of credibility with liberals and with people of the left. I think that it, and I think still today, that's quite important. That once upon a time, you you could, if you like, say, oh. Christianity is conservative. It, it, it simply props up uh, the powerful. It's a force that tends to be reactionary. Well, I think liberation theology, if you like, opened the way for people to say, well, no, there are all sorts of ways in which Christianity actually is a kind of radical force. Christians do get people to to reflect on and 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 consider uh, matters of social justice and all kinds of matters of justice. Uh, in exciting ways. And I think some people who once upon a time therefore would have written off Christianity now in contemporary society really can't do so because they have to take into account that Christianity is is a real force worldwide uh, for social action. Sure. And we've obviously talked a lot about the past and the history of liberation theology, but looking ahead to the future, what role do you see liberation theology playing in addressing the pressing global challenges of today's societies, such as climate change, economic inequality and systematic discrimination? Yes, I think my answer to this is related really to what I've just said, that liberation theology showed that you could bring a Christian perspective to bear on all of these great questions and also develop Christian ways of thinking about action and proposing responses. And I think what, what comes out of this is that, once again, I think Christianity, if you like, there's a tendency in the West to see it as a Western, sure. as something that, that belongs in, in, in Western Europe and North America. But I think the great thing about liberation theology is, is that it, it's shown that Christianity is a, it's a worldwide force. Of course, originally it was. It was a religion that grew up in the Near and Middle East. It, it, it happened for historical reasons to embed itself in Europe. But actually, in the in the early centuries, it, it 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 spread eastwards and southwards as much as it spread westwards. And so, I suppose there's been a almost a, if you like, a, a recapturing of of the idea that uh, as we look at the global challenges, yes, Christianity is a global force, and and it has things to say on a global level about these great problems of our time. Sure, I think that's quite an important distinction to make in the sense that people most commonly associate it with the West and, and that's not necessarily true. Yes. Um, but finally, what advice would you give to listeners who are interested in liberation theology and are aspiring to make a positive impact on their local communities? I think that I, I would want to go back to, to fundamental Christian and gospel principles and and I think that that's the basis for, for people to make an impact on their local communities. I think I, I suppose I'd say that liberation theology shows in a certain historical setting and, and historic context that, that Christianity really, really can migrate out from the from centers of power and from universities and diocesan and centers, cathedrals and so on, and, and become a force in, in society at large and, and at every level in society. And so I don't think I'm, I'm sort of putting forward a particular program of, of action here. Sure, sure. But I think that 
that if you like what what liberation theology has shown is that that you can can successfully perform this hermeneutic mediation and and really bring to bear there are a lot of people in our society who deny this or or don't think it can happen but you really can bring biblical ideas and biblical principles to bear on immediate contemporary questions and i think again there are a lot of people in the west who sort of think that Christianity is locked in something 2000 years ago but i think what liberation theology has shown is that it christianity it sort of flares up it, it you can't keep it down the holy spirit is active in the world and there are all sorts of ways in which uh, people might write off christianity and say well it's a spent force but actually it it keeps coming back into into the into people's eye into the mind's eye into into contemporary sort of into the foreground and people have to say yeah actually there really is something here that's worthwhile for us to consider and to and it is something inspiring right brilliant as we conclude this illuminating discussion on liberation theology we extend our deepest gratitude to reverend mark jones for sharing his expertise and passion with us today and to our cherished listeners, thank you for joining us on this exploration of faith, justice and empowerment. Remember, the journey continues beyond this episode. Keep seeking knowledge, fostering compassion and working towards a more just world. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Omelas podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.